Terrific on their home floor over the last several months. 26 and 2 in their last 28 home games, including 6 and 1 in the playoffs. The only home loss, as you see LeBron James bowing to James Brown, the legendary Cleveland Brown, as he gets set for the tip off. We're not talking the singer, Mike. We're talking Jim Brown, the football player. <laughs> I should call him Mr. Yeah, we all should. That's the greatness in the building here tonight. And this was right before the game, Mr. Jim Brown. And you can take that for granted. That is two of the best athletes that we've ever seen. All time. All time. All time. We're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. It is the middle ground between light and shadow. Between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. next question was this a lot of times we have um i guess disagreements or different perspectives about the transatlantic slave trade i wanted to know what was your perspective on that like do you feel like um are the numbers correct could it, i was watching the old video for instance and it was dr clark on there he was like it was tens tens of millions and dr ben backed them up he said it was tens of millions but you have some people that feel like that didn't happen at all and they discounted. So I just wanted to know what was your perspective on Africans being taken from Africa and brought to America as slaves? My concept is they're all right. They, they are all correct. They were the first human beings to come to the American continent were the Twa and Muti. There were five that we have counted so far, scientifically, migrations to the American continent, North, South, Central, and the Caribbean. And the first three were clearly, pigment-wise, culture-wise, African. The next two basically were somewhat Asian, if we want to call it that. You had the Paleo-American, or the Twa'imbuti, you had the Clovis Folsom, and you had the Algonquin, all African. Different, varying forms, different times they came in waves. Thousands of years separated these migrations. The next one was the Inuit, or who we call the Eskimo. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the final one was the Asian who was invading 
uh, the Mongol invasions of Asia, and they came down into Canada, Alaska, and North America. So that when you're looking at the different migrations, there are some of us that I am sure have the original Paleo-American blood in us, but also those who were stolen from Africa post 1492 are also here. So we have to understand the waves of Africans. So everybody's right. And I'm watching them argue over each other. And I'm saying, but you're all right. <laughs> yes, right, there, right. Are, there is African blood that is the original human being, the Twa Mbuti, that we have inherited, not just from the Africans that were here, but from Native Americans who inherited the African legacy when they came here. Cherokee, Choctaw, Arapaho, Apache. Okay, they have black blood in them, but don't forget there were black people here that don't look like the people that claim to be Native Americans. They look more like you and I. <laughs> right. Okay, but the wave of Africans that came post 1492 also happened, and Africans were enslaved. There is a history of that. And I think we're getting it twisted and we're losing our African minds when we are historically off point by trying to make it seem like they, that enslavement didn't exist. It existed. It, it's just the way it is. That's history. But that's not to take away from the other waves of Africans that came. There were, there were waves of Africans during the 1300s that left West Africa and came to America. But, you know, the point to pick up from where we left off, brother, we have got to be very clear, even to the point that you speak about what do we call ourselves? What are we? Are we this? Are we that? The same is true is what happened to us as a people. I mean, did we come in the original years? I mean, there's evidence of Africans here that go back 100,000 years. There's evidence of, of a black woman in San Diego, California. Her bones dated 90 to 80,000 years ago. So, you know, we, you know, we have to understand that we all have to sit down and share information. And instead of arguing over each, uh, arguing with each other over who's right and who's wrong, let's put our information on the table and as a group come to a consensus of at least the science of what's going on and stop fighting amongst ourselves. Particularly when some of us exhibit deep ignorance in terms of where we're coming from and why we're saying what it is that we're saying, because our children are watching us. And we must conduct ourselves in a way that they respect us. But we must act respectfully to get respect from them. And I believe we have to have open conversations and respect and love each other enough to let everybody's information go out there and don't put somebody down because they may not think like you. Definitely. You know what I'm saying? Mm, so that I think that in answer, in answer to both of your questions, what I'm trying to do is show the roundabout way that we can begin to look at ourselves and to be able to respond to ourselves in ways that it makes sense. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Most definitely. Um, yeah, that kind of goes into my next question. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the African presence in uh, Asia. We have spoke a little bit about that about the Africans that went into the Philippines and uh, they would call them the Gritos or the, uh, 
I forget what the other name was. Yeah, I knew. I knew, I knew, right. A-I-N-U is one of the names, particularly in Japan. But again, these are Twa and Booty people, short stature, maybe mm, three, same, same exact people. They peopled the planet. There was a time that the only people on the planet were the Twa and Booty people. There was nobody else on the planet but them. Wasn't no Europeans. There were no Asians. There was just a short stature Twa and Booty that came out of the one of the final phases of the ascendancy of who we call Homo sapiens sapiens, the sixth level of the human form. And out of the end came this family, Twa and Buti Khoisan. And these individuals coming out of that began to intellectualize and began to think on higher levels about 120,000 years ago. And by about 100,000 years, they were all over the planet. Within 20,000 years, they had peopled the planet. <clears throat> and that's yeah. who you see from continent to continent. Right. And these people are still there. I've been to the Philippines. I lived in South Africa. <laughs> they still dark skinned, brown skinned, curly hair. <laughs> You've seen them? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, you're saying that you've seen them, right? Yes. That's who they are. That's the original yeah. people. They still amongst yeah. us, and there are African Americans that look like them. Yeah. I knew a brother was a martial artist. This brother was bad, but he was all of about four foot two. <laughs> Perfectly proportioned, but this brother was good in martial arts. But he is who we would consider to be an African American. He has the blood. I think Sammy Davis Jr. was Twa and Booty. When you look at a short-statured person, many times they have the blood of the Twa and Booty. That's just genetics, bro. Genetics, bro. I'll tell you why I'm the way that I am. It doesn't start on the field. It starts as a person. I was dealing with race since I was born. And in my inner self, my strength was unbending when it came to accepting that BS, racial discrimination, because I was never going to let anybody make me feel that I was not top show, top show, top show. I'm from St. Simon's Island, Georgia, and my grandmother was working for this white family there as a domestic. And I had become somewhat of a celebrity because of my football in high school. And my grandmother said that this family wanted to meet me. So I went out to the house and knocked on the door. 
and they came outside <laughs> to uh, greet me and never invited me inside. <laughs> that was like a blow to my stomach. I did not like that. That told me how I felt about being equal and sharing the rights, the same as any other human being in this country. This country. I'm from St. Simon's Island, Georgia. I'm from St. Simon's Island, Georgia. I'm from St. Simon's Island, Georgia. Today, St. Simon's Island along the coast of Georgia is a vacation getaway. But in 1803, Africans arriving on a slave ship rebelled. Natalie Mendenhall of Georgia Public Broadcasting explains that rebellion has become a legend, the meaning of which is still being debated today. A warning, this story contains references to suicide. Dunbar Creek looks like any other tidal creek you might drive across on your way to the beach at St. Simon's Island. But this place is special. A new roadside historic marker only begins to explain why. It reads in part, in 1803, Igbo captives from West Africa revolted while on a slave ship. That's one history. Amy Mitchell Roberts knows another. You had to go to people. Once I heard it... Roberts is descended from enslaved people who worked this island, which means she's Gullah Geechee. She remembers the warning a childhood neighbor got from his mother about going down to Dunbar Creek. You know, she wouldn't let her son go fishing down there because it was the end of the world. The end of the world? Because once the 75 Igbo finished the three-month voyage from Africa to Georgia's coast? They decided that this was not the life that they wanted. This was not what they bargained for. So they took control of the ship and drove their captors into the water. But there were still men on shore waiting to force the Igbo onto plantations. When the ship, a boat, stopped, They just walked over into the water. What you believe happened next depends on what you or your ancestors needed from the story. Even this story now has grown into something larger than what happened on that day. That's Griffin Lawson, Amy's cousin and the vice chairman of the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Commission. He remembers being told by his father that when the Igbo went into the water, they didn't drown, they flew home. And the flying African stories come about because... The only thing you had in your mind, like the Ebos, was being free. Freedom was not on the mind of the Georgia planters after the incident. In a letter written not long after the rebellion, slave trader William Mines hid his sympathy for a white overseer. Poor fellow lost his life, Mine wrote. As for how Mine and others of his class felt about the 12 Ebo in the group that ultimately drowned. These Africans are money to them. They are wealth to them. That's Amir Jamal Toure, Gullah Geechee Fellow at Georgia Southern University. Tori says it's wrong to interpret what happened at the Igbo landing site as a mass suicide. That's somebody else shaping the narrative. Instead, he says, see the drowning as an act of resistance. They're like saying that basically no man owns my soul. Only God owns my soul. Bobby Anekwu says that's a story that's traveled the globe. And it's called the first freedom march in the United States. Anekwu is an Atlanta attorney born in Nigeria. He's also a Ozo, or spiritual advisor, in the Igbo tradition. Anekwu and other leaders from Haiti, Brazil, and Barbados believe the souls of the rebel Igbo were still trapped in the water. After all these years, they never left. They died a violent death. So, in 2016, Anekwu and others performed a rite at Dunbar Creek called Ikwa Ozo. 
which means something like celebrating the dead. Their actions, that right, fulfilled the words now written on the historic marker for the rebel evil, which Amy Mitchell Roberts has known all her life. The water brought us, and the water will take us away. For NPR News, I'm Natalie Mendenhall in St. Simons Island. I'm from St. Simon's Island, Georgia. I'm from St. Simon's Island, Georgia. I'm from St. Simon's Island, Georgia. Have been terrific on their home floor over the last several months. 26 and 2 in their last 28 home games, including 6 and 1 in the playoffs. The only home loss, as you see LeBron James bowing to James Brown, the legendary Cleveland Brown, as he gets set for the tip-off. We're not talking the singer, Mike. We're talking Jim Brown, the football player. (laughs) I should call him Mr. Yeah, we all should. That's the greatness in the building here tonight. And this was right before the game. Mr. Jim Brown. And you can take that for granted. That is two of the best athletes that we've ever seen. All time. All time. All time. An NFL legend is dead. Hall of Famer Jim Brown died Thursday at his home in Los Angeles. He was 87. In his nine seasons playing for the Cleveland Browns in the 1950s and 60s, Brown established himself as one of the all-time great running backs. But football merely was the start of a life filled with accomplishment and controversy. Tom Goldman has this remembrance. Jim Brown called it the most beautiful game he ever played, a blend of speed, quickness, intelligence. His abilities landed him in the Hall of Fame, the first black player inducted. For lacrosse, it seemed incongruous compared to his defining and violent sport of football, but it was a testament to his superb athleticism. Brown played four sports at Syracuse University. Football stuck. He told the NFL Network in 2000 he loved how the game was a constant test. In every way, stamina-wise, mentally, courage, it pushes you to the brink, and you can either deal with it or you can't, you know? Jim Brown dealt with it, perhaps better than any running back in the game's history. There are defensive men in the league who have dedicated themselves, their souls and their bodies to a holy war against Jimmy Brown. None of them has yet won the crusade. He gets four yards and makes it second and six at the 35-yard line. This Jimmy Brown just sticks his head down and powers straight forward. With his chiseled six foot two, 230-pound body, Brown sneered at the idea of running out of bounds on a play. But his rare combination of power and speed and quickness meant he didn't only run through tacklers, he zipped around them and away from them, evidenced by the long touchdown runs that fill his highlight reel. Rushing for 100 yards in a game still is a gold standard for running backs. Brown averaged more than 100 yards for each regular season game of his his career. He's the only one to do that in NFL history, and he never missed a game in his nine years in the league. The perfect running back? No. He didn't like to block, but he did like to think his way through a game. After being tackled, Brown always would get up slowly, so defenders never knew, was he hurt or not? A little bit of playing possum. William Roden was a New York Times sports columnist for more than 30 years. This is it. He's had it. And he'd, you know, slow to get up. And then on the next play, we're just totally vanquished 
the defense. Long before he wrote about Jim Brown, Roden loved watching him play and the way Brown left the game for good. It was the summer of 1966. Brown was 30, still in his playing prime. The previous year, he'd won yet another league MVP award. He was also an aspiring movie actor. That summer, he was in England shooting the World War II film The Dirty Dozen. That's your war, man, not mine. You don't like the Grotz Major, you fight them. Me, I'll pick my own enemies. When production was delayed, it meant Brown would be late to training camp. Cleveland owner Art Modell decided to get tough with his star and said Brown would be fined for days he missed. So, Brown got tough back. He retired. Roden, who's African-American, loved the defiant message Brown sent to his team's owner. You're going to try to do that to me, uh, this proud black man, screw you. And that, to me, is when his legend began to grow. A year after his sudden retirement, Brown organized the Cleveland Summit. Nine top Negro athletes meet with Cassius Clay to discuss his anti-draft stand. They include Bill Russell, Lou Alcindor, and former pro footballer Jimmy Brown. Heavyweight boxing champ Clay, who changed his name to Muhammad Ali, faced charges for refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. The athletes gathered in Cleveland, debated Ali's stance, and ultimately came together in support. The summit was considered a key moment in the history of athlete activism. And Brown would be a big part of that activism the rest of his life. But he took a different tack. He didn't believe in the power of marching and protest. In a 2010 interview, Brown said he he admired civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., but disagreed with King's strategy of passive resistance. I thought economic development and a sense of cultural power would be a better way to fight because capitalism in America was riding high. In 1988, Brown started a foundation called Amer I Can. Its mission was to stop gang violence in Southern California, his home, and in the process give troubled young black people tools to reach the goals of economic development and cultural power. Brown's house became the scene of peaceful gang meetings between the notorious Crips and Bloods. Akilah Sherrills went to some of the meetings. He was one of many who embraced Brown's Amer I Can message. Jim had to program American. He laid out to us what the concept was, and immediately we kind of reacted to it because we considered ourselves black nationalists. So he was like, American. We was like, American? We ain't Americans, man. We Africans. He said, I tell you what. He said, you give me an opportunity to show you a different way of going about doing business, a different way about living your life, and I promise you, you will never have to worry about, you know, sustaining yourself economically, taking care of your families, and taking care of your community for the rest of your life. There was, in Jim Brown's life, a troubling irony. He effectively preached to others about empowerment and personal responsibility, but Brown appeared to ignore those ideals in multiple abusive relationships with women. Police arrested the 63-year-old legendary Cleveland Brown star at his Hollywood home for allegedly threatening to kill Monique and smashing her car windows with a shovel. Between 1965 and 2000, Jim Brown was accused, tried, and even jailed once for multiple incidents of sexual and physical assault. Through the years, he would blame the incidents on inaccurate media accounts. A lot has to do with things I've done. A lot has to do with things I've been accused of. But most of it has to do of the reporting of those things. But in his memoir, Out of Bounds, Brown admitted he'd slapped women and, quote, 
I never should have. I don't start fights, but sometimes I don't walk away from them. For Roden, this flawed part of Jim Brown's history was another lesson learned. Admire the political stuff. Admire his work with gangs. But also realize you had to hold him accountable for this other part. A 2006 book about Jim Brown was titled The Fierce Life of an American Hero. Taking the full measure of Brown leaves one nodding at a fierce life, fierce and often triumphant and meaningful. But the hero part? Perhaps not. Tom Goldman, NPR News. NPR News. I'll tell you why I'm the way that I am. It doesn't start on the field. It starts as a person. I was dealing with race since I was born. And in my inner self, my strength was unbending when it came to accepting that BS, racial discrimination. Because I was never going to let anybody make me feel that I was not Top show, top show, top show. Activity Radio, and I'm your host, John G. Horse, horse, welcome. You have found your family in a peaceful place. PAR is a family friendly information distribution program seeking, seeking to inform non white people. In particular, black classified, black classified. an assistant, and kind of racist codification. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Our beloved Bobby Womack. Bobby Womack. PAR is a family-friendly information distribution program dedicated to creating less confusion for people subject to non-white in particular black classification. Less confusion with the ultimate goal of solving problems. Replace the system of racism white supremacy with a system of justice. Immediately. Replace the system of racism white supremacy with a system of justice. Immediately. Immediately. John G. Horses Cash App is dollar sign capital J. O. H. N. Capital H. O. R. S. E. Feel free to donate if you feel this program is constructive and worth your time. Feel free to donate if you feel this program is constructive and worth your time. Get your libations and let's have a moment of silence for the grand sister, Jim Brown.
question and i am your gracious and humble host john g horse welcome you have indeed found your family in a peaceful place and i gotta apologize in advance fellow black classifieds uh, uh. had to let that body womack Run back one more time. I gotta let that energy sizzle, drizzle, and fizzle in my spirit. Jim Brown, 1936 to 2023. The title of today's episode is Jim Brown, St. Simon's Island's Extraordinary Son, 1936 to 2023. Let me repeat the title one more time if you didn't hear me. If my southern accent muffled and mushed up all the words, I'm going to say it one more time. Jim Brown, St. Simon's Island's Extraordinary Son, 1936 to 2023. And if you hadn't heard already, our beloved ancestor has transitioned. Our beloved Jim Brown, a champion's champion, a man's man, like the youngins call him nowadays, a real one. We lost a real one. Where do we begin? Where do we begin is always the question. We're going to get into the work real quick, and we're going to get up out of here because I know all of fellow Black Classifieds probably got things to do, being attempted mothers, being attempted fathers, being attempted what is it ever you attempting to be. Time is money. Money is time. Let's move on. I started the presentation off with... Dr. Carver talking about the five migrations to what we're calling the Americas, starting with the first three migrations being people, very melanated, melanin dominant, black classified. Last two migrations being people that will be identified as what we're calling Native Americans today, Alaskan natives, AKA mongoloids 
whatever that term means, feel free to do your own research. Let's move on. I thought I'd play that clip of the five migrations just to give context to the next clip I played, which is Jim Brown speaking about how he was affected by racism, white supremacy in his upbringing, be it that he was a native son of what we call St. Simon's Island, which is on the Golden Coast, the sea islands of the East Coast of North America from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia to Florida. They call that the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor. The Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor. Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor. Goodness gracious. That was a tongue twister. And I'm mentioning the term Gullah Geechee because that's a term that's used in United States lexicon describing people, a multi-ethnic group of people that were transformed during the institution of slavery with an emphasis on their African heritage, which brings me back to our beloved ancestor, Jim Brown, who would always wear a Geechee headdress on his head from time to time. If you didn't know, now you know. Do your own research on what region of people subject to black classification the Gullah Geechee derived from. And it's just a term describing people, multi-ethnic groups of people subject to non-white, in particular, black classification. And all the ethnic groups and racial groups within the Gullah Geechee is no different than all the ethnic groups and racial groups throughout the United States of America. It's just in the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor, which comes from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia and Florida, they have a emphasis on their African ethnic heritage, which is mixed up with American Aboriginal, Alaskan Native or Mongoloid, a smidgen of European with an emphasis on African heritage. Gullah Geechee, do your own research. Let's move on. And I thought that was important to bring up the Gullah Geechee because they come from a legacy of resisting and fighting against colonial aggressions. I don't want to delve into all the battles and wars that was fought for uh, centuries before colonies were solidified in the United States of America, but you had the Yamasi natives uh, uh, subject to black classification. You, you, the Yamasi warriors, you had the Gullah Geechee wars, which all fuses into what we call the Seminole Wars with Maroons and American Aboriginals and bandits and uh, African prisoners of war and melanin-dominant American Aboriginals all tooling up against colonial powers. Jim Brown comes from that. I can sit here and go over all of his football accolades, his lacrosse accolades, his trailblazing in the institution of Syracuse, but you can go to the dominant society's platforms and they'll give you all those numbers and measurements that can be ascribed to old Jim Brown. What I wanted to do was to highlight who he is, where he comes from, his heritage, 
and the legacy of fighting against racism, white supremacy, from which he comes from. And it's either true or it's not true. He speaks of always living with the weight of race on his shoulders. And this is an individual that was extremely talented and didn't have to talk about race, white supremacy. But any and every chance he got when a microphone was put in his face, old Jim Brown spoke about and did the best that he could to assist in the production of justice in the United States of America. Now that's either true or it's not true. He emphasized the importance of cultural, economic power. As he said in his words, black self-respect, self-repair. In his words, and this is old John G talking, this is my words, he was talking about replacing the system of racism, white supremacy with a system of justice where those who need the most constructive help get the most constructive help and nobody is being mistreated. Now, I could be in error. That's how I interpret the legacy of Jim Brown. Jim Brown could have kept his mouth shut and made a whole bunch of money which he did well for himself. Jim Brown could have kept his mouth shut and had a lucrative career in the cesspool of Hollywood, but he couldn't help himself. Uh, he had to speak about the production of justice. Let's talk about some of Jim Brown's contemporaries. You understand me? This mighty, extraordinary giant from St. Simon's Island, Gullah Geechee. Jim Brown was contemporaries with the grandsister of the legendary Sam Cook. Do your research, do your Googles. Jim Brown was contemporaries with the Honorable Malik Shabazz, AKA Malcolm X. Do your research, do your Googles. Jim Brown was mentor to the Honorable Muhammad Ali. Do your research, do your Googles. Jim Brown was competitive friends with the Honorable Bill Russell. Go read Bill Russell's autobiography and he'll tell you what Jim Brown meant to him. Jim Brown was also an activist example for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It's either true or it's not true. Go do your research. Who am I missing? You understand me? I can go on and on about the work Jim Brown did in the streets, the poverty-ridden streets of Los Angeles, California, with the Bloods and Crips in his American institution, solving problems with the implementing skills and trade and uh, mental health training in a marginalized group of people subject to black classification in Los Angeles, California. Now that's either true or it's not true. I can talk about any time there was 
room or space to speak about justice production in the United States of America during his watch. Jim Brown would be the first to step forward. Oh, Jim Brown wasn't perfect. I know some of the haters are sitting thinking about that. Some of the name callers. Who is? Who's perfect? I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about Jim Brown. The legacy of Jim Brown. If you're looking for perfect heroes, go and draw one. You understand me? Do I agree with everything Jim Brown said? Did I agree with everything Jim Brown did? No. But I am going to put up on my platform what Jim Brown meant to the culture, what Jim Brown meant to the United States of America. Matter of fact, Jim Brown is a national treasure. Jim Brown is a cultural treasure. Jim Brown is a black um, foundational United States black classified treasure. Jim Brown is an extraordinary son of St. Simon's Gullah Geechee culture. Now that's either true or it's not true. And for the youngins who don't know who Jim Brown is, he's worth picking up a book. He's worth doing research. I would recommend that you research the legacy of Jim Brown and you be the judge. Is he worth pouring libations to? Old John G says that he is. And I hope I have contributed to less confusion. And always remember, keep learning and stay codified.